Elliot Friedman, the enemy of fun on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. What an epic end to a weekend of hockey. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. Friedman, Merrick, and Delich along with you again. Wow. We have a lot to get to. And before we get started, I want to point out that, yeah, wow is the, that's that, you know what? That should be the name of the podcast right there. Easiest name we've come up with yet. Wow. That's the name of the podcast. And before we get into the podcast, I want to let everyone know this podcast is actually recorded in two sections. Uh, one we recorded earlier on Sunday afternoon. That's going through some of the teams that have been eliminated. And this part we're doing right now at 1231 Eastern AM after the defending Stanley Cup champions have just been eliminated by the Seattle Kraken earlier on Sunday. Something equally as stunning as well, Elliot. The Florida Panthers eliminate the Boston Bruins. Two big game sevens. This one took overtime. Carter Verhage with the heroics. Along the near boards, Bennett finds it to the circle. Verhage shot, top shelf, he scores! Carter Verhage, top shelf, and the Panthers win it in overtime! The Panthers stun the Bruins in Boston, and the Panthers are moving on to round two! Carter Verhage, the Panthers have won it in overtime! 4-3 the final! The Panthers take game seven, and they're moving on! The Panthers have done it! They've stunned the Boston Bruins! The referees want to have a look at it because it went in so high and came out so fast. But the Panthers are pretty sure they've done it and knocked off the Bruins in overtime in Game 7. Top shelf, and the Panthers win it. 4-3 the final in overtime. The Panthers have stunned 18,000 inside TD Garden. Is it in? Yes, it is. 4-3, the Panthers win it in seven games. The Panthers are moving on to round two. That is the feeling here at TD Garden. It is stunned silence. The Bruins, a record-setting season, so heavily favored, and they lose three straight at home. Three straight in the series. 4-3 is the final, but I believe you have a question to kick things off. So like you said, we're recording this seconds after Colorado eliminated Seattle. So here's my question. Oh, yeah. This is the most stunning Mm. on-ice news day in the NHL since when? Well. Or in hockey since when? The President's Trophy champions and the Stanley Cup champions are both gone on the same day. And it's not like the defending Stanley Cup champions had a bad year. They're still a hell of a team. Making it even that much more pronounced is, you know, the President's Trophy winners are one of the best regular season teams. Some maintain the best regular season team of all time. Like, I don't think we can underscore just how spectacular. 77 Canadians. Don't start with that. That's where I default to, and that's why I put the, uh, the qualifier in there. Uh, one of the greatest regular season teams of all time. But nonetheless, like not to subtract from any of this, this is a spectacular day on the ice in the NHL. One of the things that comes close. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Quick thought before you go on your Merrick tangent here. Uh-huh. Most stunning on-ice day since when? Probably Columbus-Tampa. But that's only one game. And it was a sweep. By the time it was over, we all saw it coming. Yeah. As you said, it's one game, not two. And these were both game sevens. Hmm. Audience, feel free to drop it in. Yeah, weigh in. 
I have a couple thoughts here. Here's one. The Islanders knock off the Penguins 1993. That's one of the ones I was thinking about because the Penguins had won 17 in a row and that was a game seven and it was done in overtime. I think that's an excellent contender. I thought about the year that Anaheim and Minnesota 2003 went to the Western Conference Final. Remember the Ducks beat the Red Wings in a sweep? That was a shocker. But again, I don't know if it qualifies to the totally seismic nature of this particular day. Yeah. I hate to bring this up, although he won a Stanley Cup the next year, Steve Smith. Oh, yeah. Steve Smith, 1986, banks the puck off the back of Grant Fuhr's skate and in the net, ending what would have been, well, what have turned out to be you know, a string of five Stanley Cup wins in a row for the Edmonton Oilers. It hits McDonald. McDonald was upset by Steve Smith, and Gretzky comes back. Gretzky with Krushelniski. Over to Napier. Napier with the shot. Vernon out of the net to make the save. Vernon came out the challenge that time, as Grant Fuhrer did in the second period on Steve Bozak. Everybody's in a state of shock right now. And the Calgary bench, they couldn't believe it. Now there's the puck stopped by Grant Fuhrer. Watch Smith. He comes out right in front of his net and tries to pass it through the middle. It hit Grant Fuhrer and goes in. Now for a defenseman, there's so many safe plays you can make along the boards, carry it out, but not through the middle. Off the left, back of the leg of Grant Fuhrer and in the net. And McDonald gets credited for the goal. And the other one I'll think of is probably the biggest one of all time, and it's not exactly a hip, new cultural reference, (laughs) but I go back to 1972, 7-3 in the first game between Canada and the Soviet Union. Like, I'm too young to remember that, but you ask anybody who watched that game, and I think that's probably bigger because the world was so different then than it is now, but I'm just going for anything that I can potentially think of. But to me, this is the biggest on-ice day in the NHL, the most stunning on-ice day in the NHL in a long, long time. A long time. So let's get into it then. We'll start with Florida and Boston. And the reason I want to start there is we may have now seen the last of Patrice Bergeron. We've wondered all season long whether this was going to be the end. Everybody watched this game. We all saw Patrice Bergeron waiting to hug all of his teammates on the way off. We all saw the um, the emotional hug with Brad Marchand at the end. And As the fans remaining, there aren't a lot of them at this point, but they are saluting the Bruins who stick around to give a wave to the crowd. And Bergeron leading the charge, and the team basically letting him do it, and a few hugs for him as he now departs the ice first I believe right there for the Boston Bruins and look at everybody with Patrice Bergeron look at this a touching moment for a Hall of Fame player oh boy it's a great game that brings tears to my eyes I'm not gonna lie 
you know, after the game, Patrice Bergeron talking about, well, one, had a herniated disc in his back, and that's why he missed the first four games, but also mentioned wants to take time, talk to his family before he comes to any type of conclusion. But I don't think, Elliot, it would surprise anybody if the infamous 2003 NHL draft has lost another player in its ranks. Watching the end of the game, the emotion, all the players hugging him as he went off. He did a wave around the ice. It reminds me of Chara, right? Hmm. Chara, all the Islanders say goodbye, and he waits till the eve of the next season to make his announcement. Now, I'm not sure Bergeron's going to wait that long, but it's hard not to look at that and think of the same thing. Somewhat sad embraces on one side of the ice. You know, I, I wanted to credit our production crew that worked the Florida-Boston series. On the other side of the ice, Matthew Kachuk. What a series he had for the Florida Panthers. They win it in Game 7. Let's send it to Carolyn Cameron. Carolyn Cameron did a great interview with Matthew Kachuk. Yeah. But when they threw to the interview, Bergeron hadn't hugged Marchand yet. And I was like, oh my goodness, don't stay cut with away. It. Stay, I know, stay with it, stay with it. Matthew, at the start of this series, you said that the word underdog didn't give your team's position in this series justice. Upset probably doesn't either. How do you put into words what your team's accomplished? Um, now you have to understand, like, I'm thinking, like, I know what the director's probably thinking. He's thinking, okay, we just threw the interview, but we've got to wait for this. And to their credit, they waited on the shot. They waited for Bergeron and Marchand. Even though the audio came up with Kachuk, the video stayed with those two players, which I thought was, you know, it's the kind of thing that a director won't get a lot of credit for in the public. As somebody who works in TV, I really appreciated that decision because I wanted to see that shot. You know, one of the things that was going on this year, I heard, was, you know, now the teams that are going on to Australia are next season are L.A. and Arizona. Well, initially it was supposed to be Boston. And I heard at one point the Bruins players were going to vote on it. And there was a conversation internally about, you know, would Bergeron vote because he didn't know if he was coming back next year and he didn't know if it was the right thing for him to vote if he didn't know he was going to play. And, you know, I don't know where that ended up, but that was the kind of thing that's been going on behind the scenes in Boston all year, the knowledge that this could be it. Patrice Bergeron will make his decision when he's ready to make it. But, Jeff, I I think I'm no different than anyone else in thinking that it's hard not to look at that reaction and the way he left the ice yeah. on Sunday night and not think, unfortunately, that's it. One of the greatest of all time. Um, someone who uh, who was as classy as he was talented and someone... Don't do this all yet. Like you know, I know. We, I'm a, just saying. Like, it's not over officially. And B, if it is, you're going to have to repeat all this stuff. Oh, f- fair enough. I don't mind repeating myself when it comes to someone like Patrice Bergeron. I don't mind repeating myself when it comes to someone like Nicholas Lidstrom. And I don't mind repeating myself when I talk about people like Jean Beliveau. Uh, I think history has a, a very special place for these types of players that are both uh, talented and classy um, and serve as examples for, for everybody else. And Bergeron is that guy. But to the game itself. Okay, let me ask you a question. 
So you're watching these playoffs. If you could choose and you only had one, one player, game seven, do or die, choose your fighter from what you've seen so far in these playoffs, who is your guy and why is the answer Matthew Kachuk? Well, actually, I would say my answer would be Connor McDavid because if I'm going down, I'm going down with the best player. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things we've talked about here is who was second or third on your ballot. Mm. And, you know, Kachuk was top three on my ballot. I mean, it really is the biggest upset in NHL history to every single other person other than the guys in that room. I mean, trust me, we knew probably weren't the favorites against a 65-win team, but what an unbelievable effort. Down 3-2, tie one late, overtime winner. Like, I don't know, kind of one of those legacy games for uh, for a bunch of guys on our team and, uh, and our franchise. And we just did what nobody in the world thought we could do. And that, uh, it's pretty exciting. Down 3-1 in the series. It was kind of a weird series in the sense that I thought Florida played really well in the first two games in Boston. And I thought they played really terribly in the third and fourth game at home. Like the weirdest thing for me about this series is Boston looked like the team that didn't have the experience. They looked more nervous. Like in that overtime, you could see that goal coming for the Panthers. You know, the Bruins were having trouble completing passes. Like you could see the nerves. It was really something. And Led by Kachuk, who was absolutely incredible. The Panthers win a game, and all of a sudden they're playing with house money. That was the phrase I was using in the series. It was house money. The longer they got, the more they're saying, hey, we shouldn't be in this. Yeah. And the more relaxed they got. Like the Bruins are supposed to be this relaxed, calm team. Yeah, we've seen everything, we can handle everything. I thought it was the exact opposite as the series continued. That's the most surprising thing about this series to me is the way the Panthers looked versus the way the Bruins looked. You would have thought the Panthers were the number one seed and the Bruins were the number eight seed. How much of that? Because I wondered about the same thing too. And listen, we saw a goalie change for game seven. Okay, Jeremy Swayman comes in. How much of the Bruins' nerves do you think is tied to the fact that Jim Montgomery had to go to the extent of changing goalies. Like Linus Allmark's probably going to win the Vesna. Mm -hmm. And by the end, they couldn't go to him for the most clutch game of the year. Do you think that has an effect up and down the lineup? And the, the other point too is, further to your point about Kachuk, you asked this, I think it might have been in our preview show. You said, I wonder at which point, I'm paraphrasing you, Elliot, I wonder at which point this series turns into Matthew Kachuk versus the Bruins. And you know what? The Bruins allowed it to become Matthew Kachuk versus the Bruins. And even you saw this on the Brandon Montour goal that tied things up. Yes. What's the first thing that Swayman did? Swayman takes a swipe at Kachuk in front of the net before getting set. And what happens? He's not perfectly square to the shooter and the puck squeezes through. Who's standing in front of Jeremy Swayman with a perfect screen on the Carter Verhage overtime winner? It's Matthew Kachuk. What happened was what you wondered about. 
the Bruins let this series become Matthew Kachuk versus them. But swing back to the goalie question. Yep. And I thought it was pretty interesting what Jim Montgomery said um, afterwards when he was asked about the decision to start Jeremy Swayman. Uh, he said, quote, you'd have to ask goalie Bob, that's goalie coach Bob Asenza, you'd have to ask goalie Bob a little more in detail about that. I think that when the Bruins go back and do their debriefing of this series, they will say what we should have done was played Swayman a game earlier. Like all year long, it was basically a rotation. This to me is the biggest challenge of the change in goaltending. It's that used to be your top guy played 60 to 70 games and you rode one person all the way through. Now we're talking about optimizing rest during the regular season, which I understand, but it's counterintuitive in the playoffs. Like, look at how many two-goalie setups there were and how many true two-goalie setups have there been in the first round. There have been none. Minnesota tried it. They abandoned it after a game. Jack Campbell saved Edmonton series. They went back to Skinner. Phoenix Copley came off the bench once. They went back to Corpusallo. Boston, which was the truest success story of all this, they went with Allmark all the way through. And I would wonder if when they sit down, like I said, when this is over, if they start swimming, because Allmark was also hurting here. If they start uh, swimming in game three or four, is the outcome different? And the other team that made the switch was Florida, but they didn't go back and forth. They made the change once, and they stayed with it. For all this talk about you have two goalies, nobody's really comfortable with playing two goalies. The other big brass one call was Brindamore. Like It's not like Swayman played badly. I don't think he played badly, but you talked about the one play with Kachuk. You know, Anderson's a veteran. I think maybe you can get away with that one a bit more. Anderson played great. And Brendan Moore said that he may alternate in the next series. But, Jeff, I think generally these coaches are still not at that point. Mm-hmm. And that is the danger of going tandem in the regular season. I I just think if the Bruins could do it over again, they find somewhere else for Swayman to play in this series. The other thing I just wanted to say about Kachuk, you know, last year the Oilers felt they could take him out of the series. They thought if they really went at him aggressively, and I think a lot of that was Evander Keane, they felt that they could neutralize him. This Kachuk is different than that one. There were times, you know, McAvoy took a big run at him. Oh, yeah. And he stayed a Kachuk. He didn't go quiet. And I think that's big for him. And obviously the Panthers. Okay, level with me here. On that Kachuk breakaway where he tried to go five-hole, Yep. You thought he was scoring, didn't you? Oh, I did. 100%. Uh, uh, never run 100%, 1,000%. I thought, oh, man, what a way for this thing to end. We'll talk more about Boston later in the week, but it's going to be a fascinating offseason for them. Yep. They traded a ton. They have the biggest bonus overage in the league. But let's spend two seconds quickly, because this is a massive podcast, Florida-Toronto. Give me a quick thought. Uh, first of all, I think that um, playing Tampa is probably a great primer 
to play against a team that has Matthew Kachuk on it. Because for everything the Maple Leafs put up with, whether it was Corey Perry or Brandon Hagel, Patrick Maroon, or anybody like that, that's probably a good way to get ready to play against the Florida Panthers. Would you agree with that? Yes, I'll say this. The Panthers, they're going to be the same. They're playing with house money, Jeff. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change. The one thing I'm most curious about now, what's Toronto like now that the shackles are off? Now that the first round is over and they're out of playoff jail, how different are they? It's going to be one of the great stories to follow here. And uh, This is an ex-Toronto Maple Leafs coach in Paul Maurice coming back to face his old team. Uh, there's going to be a juicy sidebar there. I mean, there, I think first of all, I think it's going to be a really good series. Yep. Any series that has Matthew Kachuk in it is going to be full of storylines and drama. My thing is, what happens if Barkov decides to show up? Our podcast where we talked about that players want to see a bit more mean from him got pretty big play down there. And I thought it was really interesting that Paul Maurice went public with the fact that Barkov was sick mm-hmm. at the start of the Boston series. That's Maurice coming out in defense of his of his captain. I, I thought that was very interesting, and I'm not at all surprised knowing Maurice that he would do that. I just know, and I think we all do, how good this player is. And if you can add that player to this mix, then I think we got an even better series. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. I think it's going to yep. be a, I think this will be a hell of a series. Again, we'll talk about you know uh, the next round at the during the next podcast. Seattle knocks off Colorado. Six seconds to go, all the way back to the near side. McKinnon hit off the puck, thrown out in front. There's the horn. A team that defied the haters. They rolled their eyes at the naysayers, and now they have defeated the defending Stanley Cup champions in seven games. The next wave is crashing into the next round. The Seattle Kraken are heading to the Western Conference semis. 2-1 2-1 to one is the final score. What a game for Oliver Bjorkstrand. He was all over the ice. Like, I'm watching this game, and he scores the two goals, and he's hitting goal posts, and he's creating, and it's chances every time he's on the ice. And I'm saying to myself, I'm feeling really smart if I'm Ron Francis. Or maybe I'm feeling really lucky if I'm Ron Francis that Johnny Gaudreau decided to go to Columbus because I got discount prices on someone that just helped us eliminate the defending Stanley Cup champions. What did you make of Seattle? The way it ended, I think Florida-Boston is a bigger upset than Seattle-Colorado. It's the defending Cup champs. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not saying it's not a huge upset. It is. <laughs> but I actually think that the way that series went and the way Seattle played, I think Florida was a bigger upset. Seattle scored the first goal in all seven games. They never looked out of it. Seattle was never out of it. Look, there was a time in that Boston series you thought Florida was done. I never thought Seattle was done. And when it was 2-2, when Eberle scored that goal, I thought they were going to win. I'm going to credit Peter Baugh for this stat. Every one of their goals was scored or assisted by McKinnon, Rantanen, McCarr, and Taves. The one thing I did know is they didn't have a bottom six goal all series, Mm -hmm. but he added that. And... Jeff, 
What are the three things we feel, or I should say I feel, I don't want to speak for you, you need to win? Goaltending, elite talent performing, and depth. I didn't think Georgiev was bad. They obviously had their elite talent, but where Seattle murdered them was on the depth yep. of their roster. Like that was the difference. And the more that went, the more I was convinced that Seattle could win that series. Now, we mentioned this on the last podcast, and I think that Jake Ottinger is the best goaltender in the first round, but Mm -hmm. Philip Grubauer, what he's been able to do, because you know one of the stories here is how the Seattle Kraken were able to shut down this potentially explosive Colorado Avalanche team. And yes, a lot of this is Adam Larson, for sure, and that Seattle Kraken blue line, but a couple of words about Philip Grubauer here. Really good in the first round. No goalie raised his level of play from regular season to playoffs more than Grubauer did. You know, I haven't checked the numbers in terms of his save percentage of the regular season compared to his save percentage in the playoffs. But from an eye test point of view, like Samsonov was great for Toronto, mm-hmm. but he had moments in the year where he was phenomenal. Like a lot of good moments like that. Grubauer really didn't have too many, not like Samsonov did. I expect now what you said about Ottinger to be the case. Like, he's just that guy. Oh, man, he's good. I don't know that anybody was expecting Grubauer to be like that. He raised his game like no other goalie. And Seattle deserved this win. I've said this story a couple times on the pod this year. The word is that Columbus had a deal with someone else for Bjorkstrand. And the Blue Jackets felt the other team screwed around with it too much. And they said, fine, you know, we'll go somewhere else. And Seattle benefited from that. Poor Bjorkstrand. He could have had nine goals in that game. Oh, I know. Every time he touched the puck. Every time he touched the puck was insane. But again, like Seattle, patient team, deep team. No Jared McCann. Like that's the thing. Like the Avalanche are going to be angry about this one. You know, you and I both agreed with the Makar suspension uh, for a game. But I think the Eberly one was a miss. You know, I asked a doctor like about Eberly coming back into the game and, you know, how he could come back when it turned out later he had a fractured neck. And what he said to me was, was kind of what Bednar said is they probably had an x-ray machine on site, but not a CT scanner. And Eberly felt okay. And then later on when the adrenaline kind of wears off, he feels the pain and you go get him checked out with the better machine and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, this is what we've got here. But look, Everly's not a dirty player. He isn't. He's, he's as clean as it gets. And you know, I'm sure he feels terrible. The one thing I think happened, if Cogliano doesn't return, Jeff, that's a suspension. That's probably what happened there. But it's a miss. It just looks bad in the aftermath of the situation. You and I disagree on this one. I looked at Eberly and said, that is two minutes for boarding. He didn't charge at him. He coasted into a hit. Was it from behind? Yeah. Eberly's head down looking for a puck. It's a minor infraction with a horrible outcome because he's coasting. He doesn't charge at him and shove him into the boards. For me, I always looked as a player in Cogliano's position, do they turn at the last second? That's the one that I always look at. No. And that's why I think the onus is on the hitter. 
If Cogliano turns at the last second, to me that's on him, but he doesn't, and I think the owner should be on the hitter in that case. If he wasn't coasting, I'd agree with you 100%. The only thing is he coasted into the hit. Anyway, I, I don't want to get sidetracked on it. You know, I just want to send the best to Cogliano. That's a tough one. And hopefully we see McCann back in the second round too. Congratulations to the Kraken. Congratulations to the Florida Panthers. Quick, Kraken Dallas. Oh man, I love the Dallas Stars. I, 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 and I, as, I do as, they're, as they're getting as the playoffs are going on, is that I'm watching them going through this Minnesota team that can play you any way you want. And if Jake Ottinger's playing like this, and if Miro Haskinen is playing like this, oh man, uh, Dallas is looking better and better to me. Freach, I listen. I love the Kraken story. We all do. It's awesome. That series was fantastic against Colorado. The pace was incredible. Just Dallas has so many ways they can hurt you, and they have that goalie who can just snuff out a game. I think we've learned right now you don't count out the Kraken. No. There's one player I regularly communicate with, probably the player in the league I communicate with the most, and he wouldn't make a pick, in a Stanley Cup pick. It's a cop-out. He admits it, but he <laughs> likes to see the way the teams play in the first round. Yeah. After Dallas won, he said, there's my Cup pick. We'll see. We'll see. They, uh, they do look good. Congrats to the Panthers. Congrats to the Seattle Kraken. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Something coming off the, the Boston series, and there's a lot of, obviously, conversation about this online, David Pasternak and embellishment. Now, before I turn the recreation back over to you, I've always drawn a very sharp distinction between embellishment and diving because I'm of the mind that it's every player's responsibility to embellish. It's your job out there, out there to try to score goals and also draw penalties. So players sometimes will put themselves in a position or exaggerate something in order to draw a penalty. But there is a difference, and it might just be like, well, define jazz. Well, I don't know. I can't define it, but I know it when I hear it. I don't know where the line is other than I can just feel it or sense it, and I guess that's different for everyone. Do you draw a line between embellishment and diving, and are you cool with embellishments? Well, first of all, I think that whole take was nauseating. So, no, I, I don't <laughs> But it's true, it. Ellis. No, it's nauseating. Ask any player if they embellish, and they'll tell you yes. And it should be erased from this podcast. <laughs> but I don't I don't have that power. Almol has the power. Just let people roast me on social instead. So, you know, obviously there were some Maple Leaf fans who were really unhappy with me last week over the nice thing. That's fine. I wish I had phrased it a little bit differently, but I still didn't like it. And then whenever there was another play, like there's one very persistent Lee fan. I give him credit. Every time there's an embellishment in the playoffs since that night, he's been sending me DMs. You're going to talk about that one. You're going to talk about that one. You're going to talk about <laughs> that one. Well, yes, because now I'm going to talk about all of them. I think it's out of control. And on Sunday night, I actually texted you know, just some players who've been around for a long time, some coaches and executives who've been around for a long time. And I just said, look, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. But I think the embellishment has gone way too far. And no one disagreed. Nobody disagreed. And as a matter of fact, 
you know, there's usually a GM meeting during the Stanley Cup final. One of the GMs said he thinks it has to come up now. It's funny, though, because if you ask all the players, they'll say, yeah, it's out of control, but I never do it. To be honest, I didn't ask any players who were active in the playoffs. I, I don't think that's a, a fair thing to do. First of all, I don't like to bug people during the playoffs. And secondly, I don't think it's really fair. And I think they have to do something about it now. You know how I feel. But the, I like a, the... I, Hold on. I like a tough game. I don't like ticky-tack fouls. The refereeing is already under so much scrutiny. And, you know, I mentioned elsewhere in this podcast that I heard from a couple of them on Sunday morning. But it, this makes it harder. And it's not good. On some level, I do agree with you. Like, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. But for me, I don't like that. I think they have to put a stop to it right now. They have to start calling more of those penalties. It's really, really hard because now you're talking about intention. And I've always found it fascinating, Elliot. I don't know how much time you spend in your life thinking about gravity, but if you notice that somehow gravitational pull is just that much more powerful around ice that is painted blue... I can't explain it. I've watched it my whole life. Whenever players are around ice that's painted blue, oh yeah, the crease, somehow they just, and these are big, strong, powerful guys on their feet, somehow they just get knocked down so easily. I, it must be gravity, Elliot. It's the only thing. This has been, my point is, it's been going on forever. Because I think it's part of every player's DNA. You're out there to try to draw penalties. Because when you do, you go back to the bench and coach gives you a cookie. Fine. But I think it's bad. <laughs> I, I think this round, it's been really bad. And I'm not a soccer hater, but I don't want it to get to World Cup soccer bad. I just don't want that. I understand that because I don't want that to happen to hockey either. And we're going that way after this round. But here's the problem in this one, because I've thought about this at the same time that you have. I think the problem with that is, though, it's really hard to ask an official to judge intention. And that's what you're doing. If you want to hear and you want to see controversial calls, ask officials to call more embellishment. You watch what will happen to this game. You think it's bad the way referees have it now? start the crackdown on embellishment. Because again, everyone sees it through their own eyes. So embellishment to me is going to be different than it is to you, Elliot. That's different to Amel. That's anyone listening to this podcast right now. Fine. But you know what, Jeff? I would rather see players say, I better not embellish because I might get a penalty. than I'm going to keep doing it because I'm getting the calls right now. Then you got to go to the coaches. Because you come back and you put your team on the power play. Here's your cookie. Thank you for doing that. Not every coach is like that. Some coaches really ban it. Paul Maurice was that guy. I remember... So was with, Kevin Deneen. With the he Marlies. was a big banner of diving. He would sit guys with the Marlies if they dove. And there was one player specifically, and I'm not going to mention this player's name. I remember Paul Maurice sitting when he coached the Marlies when I was doing color with John Bartlett. Um, anyhow... Okay, Elliot, we're uh, we're not quite done with the Game 7s, although what a weekend of Game 7s that was this weekend. There's one more. It's the Battle of the Hudson. It's the suddenly there are signs of life New York Rangers facing off against the, uh, you talked about house money. Maybe New Jersey's felt like they're playing with it. New Jersey Devils. How do you see this one now that, you know, the giant in the Big Apple has woken up? Who are you starting in Game 7 for New Jersey? 
made and started. I would do the same thing. It's his crease. Unless you, for some reason, you think he's tired, I'm going back with him. He's won you three games. He's won you three games and he's battled, he's, he's wrestled the crease away. And I don't think you can just surrender it after one questionable outing. Unless you think he's exhausted or for whatever reason he can't handle it, which would seem wild to me, yeah. I'm going back to Schmidt. You know, to me, honestly, one of the biggest questions I have about this game is Meyer, like he's been around it. I'm getting sent these stats about his expected goals or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how many primary assists he should have. It's the famous Cam Neely story. Hey, I'm getting chances. Harry Sinden. I don't pay you to get chances. I pay you to score. And right now in six games, he's got zero points. Like, I think it's so huge. You know, it's one game now, so anything can happen. But if you would tell me that the Devils would be 3-3 and Meyer would have no points. Yeah, I know. I'd feel pretty fortunate. And I would feel like there's no way he's giving us a $7 trillion. You just don't think that's going to happen. I think all the pressure's on the Rangers. I, I really do. There, there's so much on the line here for New York. You know, all their great players are going to come in in great moods. Zibanejad scored. Tarasenko was better. Kreider was better. He scored. Power play. Power play. <laughs> like The Rangers are going to come in feeling great. Because all their big guys got something, got their cookie, as you said, in game six. Yeah. But the pressure is all on them. Okay, Elliot, I want to go through some teams that have been eliminated. Now, we had to wait a little bit extra on Sunday to hear Kevin Sheveldayoff, general manager of the Winnipeg Jets. Sheveldayoff, by the way, confirmed that Rick Bonus will indeed be back um, next season as a head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. But as we're going through the eliminated teams here, man, Winnipeg is a fascinating story. And last podcast, we talked about Rick Bonus uh, and his 60-second long press conference after his team was eliminated by the Vegas Golden Knights. And then several players at their media availability, uh, most notably Blake Wheeler, uh, took exception to how that was handled by the coach. I thought that... Rick had an opportunity to address us as a team, you know, because now, now we have to answer that question, right? And I, I think, you know, he could have been honest with us. We could have had those discussions behind closed doors. So I didn't, I didn't agree with how he handled himself after that game. I know that our performance in game five wasn't up to a standard that we would have liked it to have been. And, you know, there's disappointment in that. I know how my teammates and I prepare for every game. This is the most important thing in a lot of, you know, our lives. Uh, Not my life, but a lot of my teammates don't have kids, you know, so this is the most important thing in their life. And, uh, you know, the preparation and what what we do in between games is nothing short of, you know, being all in on trying to win that game. And unfortunately, we didn't show up and a, a manner that we'd have, we would have liked to. So there's, like I said before, there is room for disappointment in that, but I, I didn't like I didn't like how we handled uh, after that game. You know, some of the decisions here are, are big ones. Uh, we mentioned Wheeler. We've mentioned Shifley. We wonder about Pierre-Luc Dubois. You talked plenty about Connor Hallibuck. You know, as we're getting set for 
you know, another week of conversation about all these teams, including Winnipeg. Where are you at right now with the Jets? So someone said to me on Sunday night, I was talking to them while the games were going on. They said they listened to the podcast on Friday and they were really interested about what we said about Hellebuck, that we didn't think that he was interested in a rebuild. And then he said that when the quote got out on Saturday where Hellebuck came right out and said it. Yeah, my my main goal is to win Stanley Cup and I'm starting to run out of time and I can feel it. I know Wheels talks about this all the time. It just it flashes by, and I'm starting to understand. Um, you do you do need to be in the hunt every single year. You got you got to make the most of your years. But um, I'm going to make the most of whatever my situation is, and and give my all in the spot or the team that I have. It was like a shockwave throughout the league. Um, I haven't thought about negotiations at all. I think that's a better question for. Chevy could be important. Uh, I haven't had my meeting yet, so I don't know where his mind's at. But um, for me, I just like I keep saying every year, I just want to win a cup. So I, I don't know what the future of this team's going to look like. I don't know what their plans are, um, and I don't know if I'm in it. To to be honest, I'm I'm not sure what they're thinking. As far as I'm concerned, is um, I'm going to give everything wherever I am. Um, if, the, if they decide to move me, that's their call. If they decide to try to talk, I, I haven't really thought about that yet. So time's on my side. I got a whole all summer, so um, I'm not in any rush. If you're looking for a goalie, you're now calling Winnipeg and you're saying, what are your guys' plans here? Because Hellebuck just sent a message saying that he's going to be available if he doesn't like what's going on here. And you're probably going to have to pay him as one of the best goalies in the league. But that one sent off alarm bells. So that's one of the first things I think of. You know, like the whole thing with bonus and and the players. First of all, I go to rule number one, Elliot Friedman, 32 thoughts, rule number one. If we want people to be honest in hockey, we can't complain when they're honest. Because that's when we get boring quotes. Mm-hmm. Everybody out here, bonus came out honest. The players came out honest. I don't have a problem with that. I think what the Jets have to sort out is, does this mean that they can't work together? Does this mean that these players won't play for Rick Bonus anymore? That's what you have to sort out. Now, we already think there's going to be big changes there between Dubois, between Shifley, between potentially Hellebach and Wheeler. But I think that for the Jets, what they have to figure out is, is this real or is this people blowing off steam? Because sometimes, Jeff, I don't have a problem with adults being adults and blowing off steam. Providing you know that now everyone's got their position out there, you can move on. If you don't think you can move on, then you've got a problem. If everybody sits there and says, yeah, I said my piece, it's over, you can deal with that. Shovel Day House Media Conference on Sunday. I couldn't watch it live. I watched it later. Nothing about that surprised me. Like Kevin Sheveldayoff is one of the closest to the best general managers in the league. Mm-hmm. Like a guy like Steve Eiserman, a guy like Doug Armstrong, a guy like Lamorello, like those guys don't give away a lot, but when they talk, they have something to say. Sheveldayoff 
you know, probably because they've got big decisions to make. And also it's the Jets and he doesn't want to slip up and say anything he regrets. He just doesn't do that. Even if he goes out publicly, he very rarely tips his hand on what he's thinking. So nothing with that media conference surprised me. Where I think the Jets have a problem here is, you know, they're kind of at a crossroad with their fan base. They came out with that ad a couple of weeks ago, so they're obviously concerned. Right. I think there's always times where you have to say, look, even if our way is not to say much, there are times when you have to say, you know what? That approach isn't working right now. We have to tell our fans what's going on. And I think in a situation like this one, I think they have to be more clear. Because imagine what your fans are thinking after watching that. If they're voting with their wallets and they're saying, this isn't what we like right now, how is that approach going to change your ticket sales? It's not. Maybe they argue we have a bit of time till we sort some things out. But at some point in time, the Jets are going to have to give a message to their fans about, okay, this is where we're going. This is what our approach is. Because right now their fans are saying, we don't like this, and you have to convince us why we should think differently. Mm -hmm. So again, my response to that was, I'm not surprised at all that that's the way Sheveldayoff handled it. That's who he is. But I think the organization has to realize that at this point in time, that's not going to work with the people buying tickets. I got a text on Friday, Elliot, from someone who heard our conversation about the Winnipeg Jets. And this is someone that's been around for a long time who said, you guys are missing one name. And this was about our conversation about what happened to the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, how did things start to crumble? Uh, you and I had a big discussion about Dustin Bufflin and his ability, his release valve ability with the Winnipeg Jets and and being able to, you know, uh, let some steam out of the room so everything wasn't so tense and so tight. And this person sent me a text and said, you're forgetting one name. Who that? Brian Little. That's a good name. Brian Little. And I asked Ken Weeb about it on uh, on radio and Ken said, you know, he was the conscience uh, of the team. I know that Mark Chipman was a, a, a real big fan of, of Brian Little, his character, how he held himself, his, his relationship with his teammates, etc. So I just wanted to make sure that we had that name out there as well, because I spent a lot of time thinking about Brian Little and his presence with the Winnipeg Jets. Do you have a quick thought? Because I've just defaulted and said, you know what, when Buffalo left, that was the beginning of the end. And bad me, I've kind of forgotten about Brian Little until this person pointed it out, and I think it's a, a really good name to remember here. I think it's a great one. I'm not going to say much more because I think you said it so well there, just that I completely agree with you and that person who texted you because we know you couldn't come up with that on your own. <laughs> Fair. <laughs>
dominating the Tampa Bay Lightning and advancing to the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for the first time since 2004. You got a bunch of piles of celebration, one for the goal scorer. How about the goaltender, though? Samsonov again, a great story. Here's the quick little turnaround off the skate of Radish in front. Vasilevsky never even saw it. Okay, so Elliot, the Toronto Maple Leafs defeat the Tampa Bay Lightning in six games, and the entire city of Toronto finally exhales after 19 years. And we wonder now what this means for not so much the Maple Leafs players and the coaches and all that. They go on to the next round. But what we're wondering about is what does this mean for Kyle Dubas? You know, there was the feeling that this whole season was going to be essentially an audition in Toronto for another contract for Dubas. But anyone who has any even a passing knowledge of how things have worked out this season around the NHL now understands that not only is this advantage Dubas, but maybe super advantage Dubas when you look at the Pittsburgh situation, which present options for someone like Kyle Dubas. Well, Kyle Dubas was forced to bet on himself and it looked like he rolled a seven. Let's go back in time. I believe there were members of the ownership group of the Toronto Maple Leafs that wanted to extend Dubas. And I think they were blocked. You know, Toronto's ownership group is 37 and a half good telecom, 37 and a half evil telecom, 25% Larry Tannenbaum. I believe that one of the owners wanted to extend them and the other two blocked it. And, uh, Full disclosure, I believe my bosses were one of the groups of people that didn't want to do it. And they said results speak. And I've, I've said this many times that when Mike Babcock was fired and he still had $25 million left on his deal, it changed everything in MLSE when it came to contracts. And that's why there was such a big fight over Masai Ujiri's extension after they won the NBA title. He deserved anything he wanted to win an NBA title, but they drew a line because of the Babcock thing. And like I said, I think there were people who wanted to extend Dubas. I think Dubas wanted an extension. It was blocked. And then Dubas had no choice but to bet on himself. And I don't think he was afraid of it. I don't think that's something that scares him at all. Now, What it comes down to is this. Now he's got some leverage. And it'll be interesting to see when they decide to play this out. Like, is there any chance they go to him now and say, all right, let's get this done? To me, the when is almost as fascinating as the if. Because now he's got the leverage is tipped towards him. Mm Mm-hmm. I do think there's in some of these situations, they're going to wait to see what happens. Like I've told you, there have been people who said there's no way they're letting this guy go even before they won the series. Record, even though he hadn't won in the playoffs, is the best by any Toronto GM since 1967. But now he's got more of a bat. I think he wants to be the general manager of the main police. If you win here as player or executive, like even give a good product, you're a god in this city forever. Mm -hmm. I think he knows that, and I don't think he's afraid of that. But I think, number one, he's going to look around. He's going to say, 
what are the top executives paid? Well, I'm in Toronto. My leverage is going to be high. I deserve to be in that ballpark. And they can fight over that. Okay. Number two, like right now, the structure is that he does not have the ultimate say in hockey operations. I think there's going to be a conversation about that. And we'll see where that goes. So I think it's two things. I think it's the offer and I think it's the control. And does that conversation, this is the one thing that I wonder, because after John Tavares scored that goal on Saturday night and the cutaway was to the GM's box and he's hugging Spezza and Brandon Pridham, part of me thinks, maybe in the back of Kyle Dubas's mind, I just became the highest paid GM in the NHL. You know, I, I don't think he would think about that in that second. I think in that moment, you're just thinking about winning. I think you're right about the win, but in the back of his mind, I'm sure he's got, he's gone through the scenarios. <laughs> if he thought about it on Sunday, uh. maybe I could see that. Look, I judge others as I judge myself. There have been times I've been forced to bet on myself. I'm not afraid of that. There have been times where that's worked out well for me. There have been times that's worked out not so well for me. You control what you control, and you do the best job at that, but you're going to need help from outside forces that you don't control. What's the line? You plan, God laughs. This year, Kyle Dubas planned. God sat in, in his recliner and said, eh, I'm letting you win this one. Okay, Elliot, so more conversations about teams that have been eliminated. And a few immediate decisions here. We always look at UFAs for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, you know, this season we look at Alex Kalorn, We look at Pierre-Edward Belmar. Uh, we look at Corey Perry, Ian Cole, Brian Elliott. One more season for Steven Stamkos. Tanner Janot is an RFA as well. First of all, just your thoughts on where Tampa's at right now. Uh, we know that their general manager, Julian Brisebois, isn't afraid of making unpopular decisions. Yep. Uh, we saw that with Ryan McDonough last season, unpopular both within the team and maybe within the fan base as well. How do you see Tampa's offseason shoring up? In a lot of ways, this might be the best thing for them. You know, they've played 20 more games than everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And there's people out there saying, well, they were the better team than Toronto for most of the series. That's the way the playoffs goes sometimes. You make your breaks, and generally over a seven-game series, the better team wins. Samsonov outdueled Vasilevsky. Toronto's best players had big moments that turned the series around. And that, to me, was the difference between the Maple Leafs and the Lightning. Like I said, I think that this is something that Tampa needed. They needed a break. They needed a shorter summer. I saw Brian Boyle tweeted that the Lightning are far from finished. And since Brian Boyle is seven inches taller than me and outweighs me by probably about 50 <laughs> pounds, I'm not going to argue with that guy. I don't think the Lightning are going to be satisfied with, you know what? We had a great run. It's over. No, I don't think they're going to do that at all. I think they're going to reload. I think they're going to figure out what they can do here. And I think they're going to say, we're going to take our summer of rest and we're not going anywhere. Big decisions. Kalorn. Yep. Huge heart and soul player. 
Tanner Janot. So I had heard rumors that Janot was going to be a healthy scratch going into game five. And someone told me he's not healthy. He's not as effective as he can be, but he's not healthy. And I think after the game that Isomont had in game five, there was no way they were putting Janot back in, which I totally understood. I'm curious to see how the Lightning view this. Do they look at it as a healthy Janot back next year with an offseason and a camp to fit in? Or do they look in any other potential direction? Like, I wonder if they go to him and try like a Nick Paul style offer and see what that does. That's kind of where I saw it going before. Yeah. We'll see what the Lightning and we'll see it Janot say now. As a quick aside, if they go that route yes. and uh, the Nick Paul deal is a 3.1 AAV, if they go that route with Tanner Janot, who, by the way, is a restricted free agent, but he does have arbitration rights, that takes up more than all the cap space remaining they have, according to Cap Friendly, which right now is at $2.4 million. Like, they got to really be cautious here about the nickels and dimes. Yes, but then again, as you alluded to, look, like last year, two days after they lost the Stanley Cup final, they went to Ryan McDonough and said, you know, hey, we have to do something here. Yeah. So if they want to make you know work, they're going to make you know work. Like, that's just who they are, Jeff. Yep. So I operate from the feeling that, and we haven't heard Brisebois speak yet, as we tape this, but I operate from the point of view that the Lightning will not accept that this core is over and they have to retool. I agree with that. They're going to come at it from, we're going to use our summer to rest. That's what we need. And we're coming back next year pissed off. I'm with you. I think they come back with basically the same group kind of because they have to, Elliot. And you have Anthony Sorelli going from 4.8 to 6.2. You have Mikhail Sergachev going from 4.8 to 8.5. You have Chernak going from 2.9 to 5.2. Like there are some natural raises that are happening as new contracts kick in. And that's where, to your point, Julian Brisebois makes the difficult decisions. And I think they come back out of necessity yep. because they don't have that depth anymore, whether it's Syracuse or whether it's draft picks they don't exist anymore for the tampa bay lightning but i'm with you i don't think that this is this is the end of the tampa bay lightning by a long shot i think one thing they do have though jeff i think they have a player in radish that they weren't sure they had you can look at him after this series and say we've got a player here now uh, and that helps the right side. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So another team that we look at and say, you know what, maybe they're kind of frozen here too. And they're going to come back with something the same is the New York Islanders. Yep. Now the Islanders will get to it and just flip it out to center ice. Islanders try to change. They will as the Kings get this puck in deep, but Pellick gives it away. A step on. Side on that. Stasny, Sharpeville. He scores! He scores! Paul Stasny ends it! Uh, they lose to the Carolina Hurricanes in six games. Uh, they have no first-round draft pick this year. Um, that was thrown Vancouver's way in the Horvat deal. Speaking of Horvat, he jumps to 8.5 next year. Matthew Barzell jumps to 9.1. Uh, UFAs are Simeon Varlamov, Elliott, Scott Mayfield, Zach Parise, 
Pierre Engvall, Hudson Fashing, who was really good for them. I really, I was impressed yes. uh, with Hudson Fashing this year. Uh, and they only have $6 million of cap space, according to Cap Friendly, to play with right now. And by the way, this offseason, they can extend Ilya Sorokin. Your thoughts on what happens with Team Lou? They just didn't have enough pop. It's that simple. Whether it was the power play, even strength, their scoring dried up. They weren't dangerous enough to beat Carolina. That's what I see. So my question for them is, you're sitting there with Horvat and saying, you're an $8.5 million guy. You've got to be more dangerous than that. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Your best players and your highest paid players, they have to deliver more. And I'm sure that the Islanders are going to look at this and they're going to say, some of this is internal. Like, I think there's going to be teams looking at Seattle and what Seattle did this year. You know what it's like when you go into the thrift shop and you find three great T-shirts for $10? (laughs) That's what Seattle did last summer. They got their Sprong T-shirt. They got their, well, Tolvanen was during the season. They got their Tolvanen T-shirt. And they got their Bjorkstrand t-shirt and they're walking out of there and all their friends are jealous because they found those great shirts on the rack before anyone else did. I look at two teams like this. I look at the Islanders like this and I look at Minnesota like this, but the Islanders identity has always been down the lineup. We crash and bang. And I think that's very important because I think you need a lot of that, and it definitely fits with the identity the Islanders put together. And sometimes these things are easier said than done, but when I look at the Islanders, they've got to find a bit more scoring depth. They just didn't have enough to score on Carolina. If you're going to win in your division, you know the way that Carolina is going to play, you have to be able to score on them. And They couldn't do it. It's unfortunate. I look at two players who are in their early 20s, and I wonder, okay, at at what point are they really going to pop? One we already saw a little bit of last season towards the end, and that's Noah Dobson. Yeah. Uh, And I don't think that this was, you know, by his definition or anyone else's, a successful season for Noah Dobson. And I know there were injuries, but I can't help but thinking that the Islanders had planned to have more offensively from Oliver Wallstrom. Yes. By this time. Those are a couple. But to some of the UFAs, you have a thought on this one now. The Islanders have $6 million of cap space to play with. Yeah. Varlamov, we've talked about before, and that battery with Sorokin. Uh, We've talked plenty about Scott Mayfield. We've talked about the 20-goal campaign uh, by Zach Parise. We've talked about Engvall, and we just mentioned Hudson, Hudson Fashing as well. Do you have a thought on any one, any combination, or maybe all of these pending UFAs? All of this is based on finances, we should say. I really like Fashing. I thought he was a good fit there. Players like Fashing who don't know what their future is, and then they find a place that really works for them. Unless he gets intel that someone's going to blow him out of the water with a huge offer that he can't say no to, I find that those kinds of players, they kind of look at it like, well, I really didn't know what I was going to be, and now I've found a place to trust me. I really don't want to fool around with that. So, like, if the Islanders really believe it's real with Fashing, mm-hmm. and nobody knows him better than they do, I'm going to him and saying, can we get some security here 
maybe not at a huge number, but at a number that makes you say, yeah, you know what, I'd be happy to lock up for a couple of years and, and, and a number where you know you guys can work around. I've seen that before. Engvall, to me, is really interesting because, you know, he's got a good numbers case. Like, Toronto knew at a certain time that they weren't going to be able to keep him because the counting stats were always very good. The thing about Engvall is he's kind of got this reputation, whether deserved or undeserved, that the sum should be larger than it is. Like, all the parts are there, and it should be more than you get. You know, I think that's why Toronto ultimately decided to trade him, because they looked at the number that he was going to cost and say, we don't think that that number fits for this player. Like, he's such a gifted physical player. Mm -hmm. Like, he's got every physical gift you could want. It's just that the team that knew him the best, they just said, Nah, it doesn't work for us. You know, the other one here, too, is Josh Bailey. It can't continue. Didn't get into any of the games. So you have to find a solution for that. And I wonder if that, depending on how they decide to do it, does that clear up some room for the Islanders to do some things? You know, I'd like to talk about Dobson for a second. Sure. He had a rough playoff. You cannot give up on that guy. He's too talented. No chance. Like, obviously, I was watching, you know, we're working the Florida-Boston game while that Carolina Islander game's going on, so I can't watch this closely. I'd heard about the complaint about the icing, so I rewatched that shift. Someone told me there were some more icing complaints. I didn't see them all. I saw the last one. Dobson took a, a lot of criticism for that last play. Obviously, you, you wanted to make a better play, but it's not like he had a lot of options there. He didn't really have anywhere he could go with it. I guess he could have gone off the glass. Like, I guess that's the other thing he could have done. Mm -hmm. But they were in a line change. There weren't any options for him. Carolina knew it. They're a smart team. They're coming at him. And he was trapped. And as for the icing, you know, the one thing I'll say about that play is people say it's a race to the dot. It's not. That's not the way it gets officiated. What it is, is it's at the dot. When everyone, when the first player gets to the dot, the linesman's call is who they think is going to win the race to the puck and not who's first when you get to the dot. Exactly. And you watch that puck. It's going around the net. That's not an indefensible call. I can tell you this, no matter which play they ruled that, the other team was going to be mad. Mm -hmm. If they'd ruled for the Islanders, the Hurricanes were going to be mad because we know Rod Brindamore isn't always so easy when it comes to calls. <laughs> and I knew when I saw it why the Islanders and their fans were going to be mad. But that was a tough call because the puck was going around the net and it's not a race to the dot. Yeah, it's the big it's one. when they get to the dot who they think could, is going to win the race. And I understood why that call happened. Put it this way, Jeff, I, I got to say, I heard from a couple of officials last night and this morning who were not happy with me about some of the comments I made on air Saturday night. But on this one, I thought the icing call was defensible. I think that's one that needs to be banged home, too, because everyone thinks it is a race to the dot. It's not. 
at all. It's whoever is in best position to touch the puck first. It becomes so obvious on, on, on pucks that go behind the net. Yes. Again, like many other calls, it's a judgment call. Yeah. This isn't just a race to the dot. This is a judgment call. Who's going to touch the puck first based on where the puck's going? I'm with you on that one. Yes. Um, you have a thought on Sorokin here? Like, I, I thought that, I think a lot of us did, found it bizarre that the Islanders' season died on a play that we haven't really seen at all this year from the Islanders, a bad play by Ilya Sorokin. He turned in a fantastic season. He's going to appear on many heart trophy ballots and Vesna. Could be number one but he's gonna appear on ballot and on on vesna as well i just thought it was and i think everybody did found it bizarre that it's uh the islander season ended with him letting in a very unsoroken like goal but they can extend him this offseason uh we know how lou operates when he identifies someone he tries to lock him up for as long as he can do you think he gets an extension this summer do you have a, a peek inside the brain of lou here Yes, and the reason I think he gets the extension this summer is because Lou Lamorello, if he believes he needs you, then he does not let you go into your last year unsigned. Mm -hmm. Look, like he can make an offer and Sorokin can say no. Like that could always happen. The player has obviously a lot of control here, but you know, when it comes to Sorokin, I, I think they'll lock him up. I think they recognize how important he is. I think they've always had that in mind. You know, you know, one thing someone said to me about like a player like that is when you do your last deal, like he signed a bridge deal. Yeah. You don't think at that time, the Islanders and Sorokin didn't talk about a big term deal. They knew exactly what they'd be looking at when they did the bridge. So there's a reason it worked the way it was. He said there's no way they didn't know what it would look like. It's probably higher now, but they still know what it's going to look like. And Lou Lamorello let Barry Trotz go a year ago because he knew he wasn't extending Barry Trotz. Yep. So he said, I'm not allowing the uncertainty. He won't allow the uncertainty of Sorokin going into his UFA year. The only way I don't think this guy gets signed is if the Islanders think the ask is outrageous. Other than that, I think they get him signed. Could it be that Kyler Yamamoto might end up being the hero for the Oilers in Game 6? It's his first of the playoffs. 3.03 to go here. And they just added a second to the clock. Crunch time for the LA Kings in a must win. And the Oilers somehow find... Away again to regain the lead. Los Angeles Kings. Uh, they lose to the Edmonton Oilers in six games. Uh, questions about Vladislav Gavrikov, unrestricted free agent. Jonas Corposalo, netminder, unrestricted free agent. Uh, they're one year away from Monte Kopitar's contract uh, expiring. Uh, Gabriel Velarde is a restricted free agent. Rasmus Kupari is a restricted free agent. And through all of this, Brant Clark is coming, Elliot's yeah. defenseman Brant Clark is coming. Your thoughts on the Kings? Well, I got to think he's going to be in the NHL next year. I think the Kings could low-key have a really fascinating offseason. Everybody really loved their prospect base. And then what did the Kings do? They went out and they, they traded for Victor Arvidsson. They traded for Kevin Fiala. And they pushed some of their prospects down. We brought up Radish earlier. 
it was interesting watching the Lightning Toronto series with Derek Lalonde. Yep. Or sorry, Derek Lalonde. I keep forgetting. You keep correcting me on this. And you're right. <laughs> and I'm wrong. Because Ken Daniels corrected me. Ken's just a busybody. Mind your own business, Ken. <laughs> but like, you know, one of the things that Derek talked about was when he watched Radish the whole series, and he said, this is why you have to be so patient with young players. Because Tampa didn't know what they had with Radish. And now they look at him and say, wow, we've got a player here. And Lalonde was so impressed with the way that, you know, Radish handled himself. So the Kings here, they're trying to do the same thing. Look, like you've lost in the first round two years in a row now. It's not a shame, but you know what that means. Like the clock is ticking. Now ownership, management, coaches, first round's not enough anymore. Your fans, ah, we've seen this movie before. First round's not enough anymore. So you, you probably have to make decisions on some of these players. And the other thing, too, is some of these players, Jeff, like I'm sure a guy like Kaliev, and I'm sure he's not the only one, like he's like, I should be playing. I should be in the NHL. I'm not an up-and-down player. If I'm not going to be in your lineup, it's time to move on. Like I think they've got a bunch of these decisions to make. I thought Byfield gave them some moments in these series. I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if he would have scored once. Mm-hmm. because I think with him, the floodgates just would have opened. Mm-hmm. But these guys now, I think some of them, they're going to have to say, all right, we consider these guys NHLers and others. Maybe it's time to move on. Clark's, to me, in the NHL next year, but some of their other prospects, do they move on from them and then say, okay, this is what it means for our roster? Because I think some of those kids are going to be impatient. They're going to say, you know what? We're not AHLers anymore. Yeah. We need to be in the NHL. Is it going to be in LA or is it going to be somewhere else? You know, it's it's fascinating too, because if you look at the Buffalo Sabres and what they've done very deliberately now, they've stopped blocking. Like I understand when you have a bunch of young players, you want to put up blocks in front of them, not ready for the NHL yet. And, you know, Kelly Rudy always talks about this, earning your spot having to take a job yep. from someone else. And I think Kelly's 100% honest. And I believe in that. I believe in that too. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you have to take the blocks away. Now, if you look at Buffalo, they're taking the blocks away. Yeah. Like right now, Buffalo, Kevin Adams believes like it is time for his young guys. They are ready. I think we're going to see more coming up from Rochester next season. And I wonder, I'm with you, Elliot. I wonder if LA's at that spot now. Yeah. They've made some blocks here. You mentioned Fiala. You mentioned Arvidsson. You can throw Philip Deneau into that equation as well. Yeah. I wonder if they're starting to say, we need to take some blocks away. I look at it the other way, Jeff. I think they might say these blocks are going to stay. Like, you're not taking Philip Deneau off that team. You're not taking Fiala off that team. I'm just using that as, as examples of guys that they have brought in. But I'm saying, like, now you have to start to open up pathways for these guys from the Ontario Reign to get into the lineup. Or move on from them. Right. That's the, kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. I wonder if the Kings' decision is going to be, you know what? We might move on from some of these players. Now, elsewhere, I think Todd McClellan gets an extension. Gavrikov, they will try to sign. Now, I think they've tried to sign Gavrikov. I, I've talked about this many times. Everybody had permission to talk to Gavrikov. Before the Kings made the trade, I think they tried to sign him. I think they said... Here's the max we can do. 
and I think it was probably just under five, and they couldn't get it done. I don't think that number is going to get it done. But I, I could see the Kings trying to get Gavrikov done. You know, Corpusalo, you know, he gave them a great run here. On some level, like knowing Rob Blake kind of the way I do, one of the most competitive players of his generation, he's sitting there looking and saying, we were up two games to one and we had a 3 nothing lead in game four. And that's not all on Corpusalo. But now you've got to make a big decision on, do we sign him? And again, I don't want anyone to make a thing like Rob Blake's going to look at that and say no, because I don't think that's true. But a guy like Rob Blake, that will bother him. That'll make him be at least, I'm not sure, at least in the short term. We'll see where it goes. He and the rest of the Kings, they're going to be angry about it in the interim because that's just the way competitors are. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder, does that change the equation at all for them, Jeff? Well, you know what? That sort of leads into the elephant in the room here. The Los Angeles Kings need a goalie. Yeah. The Los Angeles Kings need goaltending. And to your previous point, I look at this Los Angeles Kings team and I say they are loaded with prospects. Now, it's tough for these guys to find spots right now. Like we're talking about Brant Clark and players like Jordan Spence. You know, those two guys are probably fighting over one spot yep. next year on the blue line. And there's a lot of guys that'd be fighting for a spot. To me, L.A. looks like a team that is poised to make a big move for a goaltender, and they have the assets to do it. Yeah, I agree. Desirable, you. young assets. The way this thing is heading, I think if we're looking at summer blockbusters coming out of anywhere, I'd look at Los Angeles, and it would be around a goaltender. I think you're right. I think it's a great call. You know, earlier in the year, as you know, I thought that it might be Demko time in Vancouver. Yep. And to me, L.A. made all the sense in the world. I don't think Vancouver will consider that now. All right. Uh, the Minnesota Wild, uh, another first-round exit. They lose to Dallas in six games. And the remaining faithful not pleased as Faber's long shot at the horn tipped wide. The Dallas Stars take game number six, four to one. They are moving on, and the Minnesota Wild fail to advance out of the first round as they have now dropped six straight opening round playoff series. Another great regular season out of the Minnesota Wild, 103 points. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury talking about one more season. Uh, UFAs here are Gustav Nyquist, Oscar Sundquist, uh, Ryan Reeves, Marcus Johansson on the blue line, Matt Dumba, and John Klingberg. Philip Gustafson is a restricted Free agent, Kalen Addison as well. Uh, we have players that are bumping up to higher compensation next season, most notably Matt Boldy, yeah. uh, who jumps up to $7 million. And now the quote-unquote dead buyout cap space jumps from $12.7 million to $14.7 million. Elliot, oh, and they need a number one center, comma, still. Your thoughts on Minnesota? Well, I, I just think a lot of that's going to have to come from within, Jeff. Like, number one centers are hard to find. Now, I don't know if Kaprizov still felt the effects of the ankle injury, but he was not himself. Mm-hmm. Zuccarello was not himself. And Boldy, and it was his second playoffs, he looked overwhelmed. Yep. And I think it will come for him eventually. I think he's too good. You're not going to win a playoff series 
if three of your most important offensive players struggle, especially not against that team. Like, if you're going to beat the Dallas Stars, Kaprizov, Boldy, and Zuccarello have to be impactful. And it's almost that simple with me to Minnesota. But the one thing I, I do think is that, like the Islanders, they have a certain identity, and I think you need that identity. I don't worry about the Wild making the playoffs because when you play like they do in the regular season, not too many other teams play like that. Yeah, You're going to get enough opponents who see and they're like, ugh, I don't want to deal with this tonight. It's season's too long to put up with getting thrown around by these guys. Then I think you're safe and, and you're good, but they need more finish. And it's going to come from two places. One, their best players have to deliver in the postseason. But number two, they have to do that thrift shopping. Like, they had a great deal. Marcus Johansson this year, I thought that was a great deal for them. But now they've got to find someone they can get for a really low price like that. They like to use their depth to beat people up, which, again, I don't think is a terrible strategy. But I think they have to find one or two more players like Seattle did. Well, you know what makes things easier for them right out of the gate, Elliot? The presence of Brock Faber. Yes. I know it's a very, very small sample size, but we're saying goodbye to Matt Dumba on the right side. Are we saying hello full-time to Brock Faber on the right side here? I think so. Like, that Dumba run, you you never thought it was going to end. Like, how many trade rumors was that guy mentioned (laughs) it? You never thought it was going to end with him. Oh, man, too many. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about Minnesota, too, is and I, I really read Russo's stuff because he's very plugged in. Like, he's talking about, do they move on from Marco Rossi and Kalen Addison? And look, like, first of all, I'll say this. Minnesota knows those guys better than anyone else. So if there's problems in those cases, I will defer that Bill Guerin knows more than I do. But again, I go back to what I'm calling on this podcast, the radish rule. (laughs) You give up on young players, especially young players as talented as those two guys are, at your own risk. Mm. Unless the Wild are absolutely convinced that those two players cannot help them, I wouldn't be trading those guys. Yeah, They couldn't play full-time yet in Minnesota's eyes. Those guys can score. And Minnesota couldn't score. One of my favorite lines I've heard in the NHL is, you have two ways to fix your problem. You can solve it internally or you can trade it. It's always better to solve it internally. Let me finish with this one. And it's a little bit of sports talk radio catnip. So the Minnesota Wild have $3 million worth of cap space. Yeah. They play in the, I'm new to hockey here, help me out. Do they play in a division called the Central? Is that the one where Minnesota plays? I'm, I'm new to hockey. Y- yes, they do, young Merrick. Yes, okay, they do. Okay, thank you. Now, is there a team called Chicago Blackhawks in the NHL? And, and if there is, do they also play in this, checks notes, Central division as, as, as well? Is there a team called Chicago, Elliot, Mr. Friedman? Yes, yes, Jeff, they do. Welcome to hockey. Yes, that's, you're correct. 
Now, I was on a website on the weekend. I love I love websites and I, I love Twitter and I love social media and you know I, I, I spend a lot of time there. And I read on a website that a team, this team called the Chicago Blackhawks, has like forty million dollars next year so they can buy players. And Minnesota, like they're they're gonna have a hard time signing a lot of guys. I, I read on a website. So maybe if you were like um Chicago, you might do something uh how do you pronounce it? I'm not sure whether I'm going to say it right. Um, offer sheet, someone like Philip Gustafson, because he's a goalie and you need a goalie and you have a lot of money. Now your newness is, is showing. <laughs> this is a stupid proposal. Do you think the Chicago Blackhawks are going to offer sheet someone? Not a chance. I don't know. I'm putting it out there. We always talk about preying on a team's salary cap structure. Why would the Chicago Blackhawks, yes. who are doing the Tankathon Supreme right now, like it's it's not just a regular Tankathon, it's a Tankathon Supreme. Yes, rebuilds are about getting good players, and you don't just get you just you just don't go about it one way. All I'm saying is, if I'm the Chicago Blackhawks and I have all this cap space. And I look at what Minnesota is up against next season. Like, no. I know that the offer sheet is a very, very rare creature in the NHL. I just want to throw it out there as a source of conversation. If I'm wrong, I'm not going to, like, offer to lick the carpet like Jesse Pollock did. But, like, <laughs> I, I, would, I would be very surprised if Chicago offers you did Philip Gustafson. You mentioned one of my favorite lines, and it's from Grandma Friedman, and that is, you plan, God laughs. Sunday is a huge day for your grandmother. Do you care to share this with our listenership? Yeah, she passed away a while ago. Uh, but uh, Jeff, these are not words that you know come really easy to me. It's not a subject I'm overly comfortable talking about. But she's going into the uh, Waterloo Region Hall of Fame today and uh, taking the day off. I'm uh, not working the two games seven tonight so big break for the viewers jeff <laughs> but um i'm just i'm just headed up to the ceremony uh it's gonna be interesting like uh you know she came to canada to start a new life montreal wasn't a great fit for her and she ended up in kitchener waterloo and uh she loved it there i still remember the day where she had to leave my uh my grandfather had died. She was living on her own, and it was just time to go into a home and get a bit more uh, help. Mm -hmm. You know, she was so independent. Man, she was tough, and she was independent. And I still remember I was away at the playoffs, and I called her the night before she left, and, you know, we had uh, we had a conversation, and uh, it, was, it was tough for her to leave, and... Uh, you know, like, it, it's interesting. Like, she's going in, I think, with seven other people, and there's some athletes here, and there's uh, some people who worked in government for a while, all very deserving. I, I read their bios, and, you know, she's going to the Hall of Fame because she was a Hall of Fame person, really. And uh, I'm glad I get to go. It's very meaningful. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of funny, Jeff. It's just like... Uh, I don't know. It's nice to see someone just get recognized for who they are. Like it's, uh, I don't know how I'm going to handle this, but I'm really, I'm really happy for her. That's all.
All right, Elliot, some news to wrap up this part of the podcast. Uh, what is the latest with the Ottawa Senators? I'm sure there's, I mean, every week there's something new as we march towards some type of conclusion. What do you think this week will bring? Well, Bruce Garriock had an article on Friday, I think it was, about Ryan Reynolds preparing and Remington Group preparing a billion-dollar bid. Yes. Um, I don't have any reason to believe Bruce is wrong about that. I, I think he's right. It's been reported that the deadline is May 15th, but I think a push is coming from Reynolds and Remington. I think they're going to push hard this week. I believe that group has been in contact with the NHL in the last little while about what it's thinking and what it would like to do. I think there's some alignment with the Melnick family. I think there's some alignment with the local potential part of the ownership group, which is Jeff York. I think they have been getting everything in line. And I don't have a 100% answer what clarity is going to mean yet, but I think this week we're all going to get some indication about how serious they are and that they're ready. Um, And through all of it, we anticipate Ryan Reynolds to be charming as Ryan Reynolds has always been. That is the con- that is the constant here. You know, the other thing too is I had heard there'd been some conversation about maybe some of these groups combining. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it kind of fell apart over the last week or two. But I do think there was some conversation between Reynolds and Remington and some of the other groups about getting together. But I think it fell apart. This isn't then like Remington versus the world. No, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think if anything, people talk to them about joining them. And I think there were conversations, mm-hmm. but I heard it had fallen apart. We'll see if it changes, but I heard that. Okay. Uh, new week on the horizon here. Uh, Calgary Flames, anything new there? I think we're also going to get clarity on their coaching situation this week. I do. I, I think it's been a pretty hard week of internal conversations. I believe that as an organization, they went through the player interviews, the end-of-year interviews. I think there was a lot of time spent processing them and some of the things that were said, and I think we get clarity this week. Any idea when we get clarity on the general manager's position, or is that end of the year once everyone is done? No, I think they're. I, I mentioned, I think on Friday, I think they're going to start doing some interviews. Okay, on that, we'll wrap. Uh, hope everybody enjoys game seven on Monday night and round two, which begins on Tuesday. Taking us out is a Thai Australian singer, songwriter, and producer from Melbourne. Tally Rodden, stage name Rice Wine, treats his music like a time capsule, telling the story from that period of his life. From his 2017 record, here's Rice Wine featuring Brandon Eugene Smith with Dreams Nightmares on 32 Thoughts, the podcast.
dream. 